Well, friends, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be uh, arriving here in Acts chapter 7, although it's a little bit of a bonus prize. We're going to be talking about Acts 6 as well this morning, uh, because the two really do go hand in hand. And they're centered around this one person that we read about last week named Stephen, uh, the first of one of the many deacons that were chosen and installed and ordained that we saw last week. Uh, But as I was preparing for this message, all about missions, really, truly, I was reminded of my own time, uh, just like Joseph as you go off into college, of my own time as well in college down in Lynchburg at Liberty University. Uh, Back when I was in college, 18, 19, 20 years old or so myself, uh, I had many friends who were just so passionate about foreign missions. Those who just seemed to give up everything in their lives for the sake of making much of Christ. They would listen to the old podcast preachers of the day like John Piper and many other folks who are just wonderful, gifted orators of God's gospel. And they were just enamored with the love of God and the glory of God. And they wanted to see the glory of God displayed amongst the entire earth. And so they even chose to study intercultural studies and business and various trades in order to take the gospel message across the known world. Many of these people, though, uh, were truly called to serve overseas. Many of them, even including former roommates of my own, served in places like China and, honestly, other closed nations that are uh, undisclosed locations that I can't even mention here during a live stream. Many of these men and women, though, were so just driven by that ardent zeal to be about the glory of God and Christ bringing redemption to his people, that they forsook all, seemingly all earthly pleasures. They chose to throw anything away, maybe even almost a little too extreme in some ways, but they chose to throw anything away that would get in the way of their goal of making much of Christ. They were people that, if you had a conversation with them, you would just walk away and and be filled with a sense of awe and wonder, as if for the first time about God himself and his name as we sung about, and what God was doing, his work in the world. To this day, 15 years later or so now, I still cannot ever forget their names and their faces, though again, I would not dare to mention them by name here. But by and large, in the eyes of this world, they are truly anti-celebrities. They are those people who are unknown. They are people, most of them to this day, to my knowledge, still serving in places, um, again, places I can't even mention, as much as I would want to share with you all, places that are so just opposite of the kingdom of Christ. And so their existence is unknown to most. But in God's sight, I want us to hear this, in God's sight, their continued witness to the glories of Christ, the true king, it is still seen by him and and is most beautiful in the sight of God. They're a beautiful witness for how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news. Well, such was the case as we're about to see here in Acts 7 this morning. As we come now to uh, chapters 6 and 7, we begin to see Stephen, again, most likely, as it's the same Stephen there that we just read about last week, who was one of the deacons, who was established and ordained as one of them. And yet Stephen was more than just someone who served at the local church level. He was one who was just so, like a missionary, enamored with the things of Christ and couldn't help but proclaim the glories of Christ wherever he went, into the streets, loudly proclaiming Christ, him crucified and resurrected. And so in Acts 6 verse 5 if you want to look there briefly before we arrive at our passage this morning in Acts 7 in Acts 6 verse 5 we saw again last week even that Stephen was described as being full of faith but also full of the Holy Spirit now that is not to say that faith and the Holy Spirit are two separable things rather as John Calvin puts it in his own commentary on these two chapters Uh, Faith, of course, is a gift from the Holy Spirit. The two do go hand in hand. But the reason why it says full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit is because 
he was arguably just endued with a sense of zeal from the Holy Spirit, a sense of wisdom from the Holy Spirit, an uprightness and brotherly love, diligence and integrity of a good conscience, as Calvin puts it in his commentary. All of these things were decorations, if you will, from the Holy Spirit, decorating the life of one of his saints, Stephen, a lowly servant of Christ. But all these things are also decorations that he loves to lavish upon each one of us. So I hope we know that as well. A little later on in Acts 6, verse 8, Stephen is then described as being not just full of faith in the Holy Spirit, but then full of grace and full of power, doing mighty signs and wonders amongst all the people. And he continued to bear witness to the greatness of God's salvation, the message of the cross of Christ, that he himself, too, would, figuratively speaking, bear in due time. And see, here there's a turning point in the book of Acts. We've seen already a few of them at this point, but here we see a truly stark difference between the gospel spreading freely under somewhat decent civil authority and then the gospel being met with opposition as even the civil magistrates and those in charge began to oppose the gospel and its advancement. See, here at the tail end of Acts 6, in this transitional passage, we see that those of Alexandria, Cyrene, Cilicia, and Asia, those who were most likely all Jewish proselytes, converts to Judaism as a religion, and who were of foreign political influence and persuasions, uh, all of these guys here from the synagogue of the freedmen, as Acts 6 puts it, begin to throw down the gauntlet at Stephen's feet. They begin to say, okay, you are blaspheming against God, but not just God himself, also Moses and even all of the works that we are doing here in our religion, that it was devoid of Christ. They began to call him out, for they were blinded. They were blinded to the things of the gospel that were far too marvelous for them to truly see apart from the spirit of Christ. And so in their own blind stupor, they were enraged over Stephen's understanding of the gospel of grace. They were enraged over his wisdom that he exercised and the power of the Spirit's testament to the word concerning Christ and his gospel. And so what did they resort to here? They resorted to mob violence. And that's what we're about to see here in Acts 7. They resorted to brute force. They seized him. They brought him to the council in Jerusalem who was still in that same moment filled with a kind of bloodlust against the apostles, the same council who had already tried to defy them twice over now, at least. And so these people in the mob, and now the council, begin to lay out false witness against Stephen, false charges, wrongly again accusing him of blaspheming God, the words of Moses, and again their established religion. But the council then, in that moment, took up a judicious role. And in that moment, Stephen is noted in Acts 6, verse 15, began to fix his gaze upon the council. And all of them beheld something marvelous in front of them. His face, probably figuratively so, but in a very real way, began to shine like that of an angel. There was something about his message that was pure and innocent, and they couldn't deny it. So friends, what happened next? Well, let's go ahead and read Acts 7. And admittedly, I definitely get this, it's a long passage. In fact, it's the longest discourse in all of Acts. Uh, but it's so important for us to hear the words, the, the, the sermon, if you will, the message from Stephen's own lips here in Acts 7. And so again, it's going to be a long passage as a heads up, but it's worth reading. So let's go ahead and hear Stephen's response here. Acts 7, verse 2, after he's been questioned, Stephen says this, this is the word of God. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years, 
But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And so on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, 
brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the last days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? This is the final section here. Still the words of Stephen. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. What a sobering passage. Uh, but this is the word of God. Uh, let's, let's come to him in prayer and ask for him to give clarity as we think through this together. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your name is above every name. We thank you that the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess that you are Lord and every knee will bow in heaven and on, on, on earth and confess that you truly are Lord. Lord, here in our passage this morning, we are about to see a sharp division happen a sharp division which would change the church forever, let alone the city of Jerusalem. A break point, if you will, between those who were in Christ and those who were not. And so Lord, as we read of uh, such a sombering passage, would you give us wisdom to hear uh, by your spirit the word of Christ proclaimed in the midst of all of this. Let us heed the word of Christ and take it to heart and cherish it within our hearts. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate this passage to us and shine brightly upon it so that we would see Christ in his glory and nothing short of that. And so we pray all this in Christ's holy name, amen. Well, friends, admittedly, what we just read was probably the longest passage I will ever read to you. <laughs> so I know it takes about five minutes to get through and it's a very long discourse, but... I think it's important that we just read the whole thing because this is more than just a uh, glance over Old Testament history and what seems like the whole telling of Old Testament history all over again. Rather, this was a wonderful illustration of how, just how, the Holy Spirit gave in his hour of need a minister of the word, a deacon in this case, the words to say before unlawful rulers. I'm reminded as I was thinking through this passage of the words of Christ in Luke chapter 12. In Luke 12, Christ in advance, years in advance, even comforted his own people, essentially saying, this is how you can go about these times when you are faced with trials and tribulations. In Luke 12, Christ himself said, when, not if, but when they bring you before synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, all three of these things which happened right here in Acts 7, when these things happen, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we don't do our due diligence and our research and know the word of God as much as we can, but he promised him that when his believers, his followers would face persecution, he would still be with them. And such was the case here in Acts 6 and 7, as we saw. Because again, Stephen was filled with the Spirit. And it's bookended by this. He was filled with the Spirit at the beginning, and he was still filled with the Spirit at the end, as it also notes. Bookended by that truth that the Holy Spirit was with him, defending him in his greatest hour of need. Here in Acts 7, Stephen's speech had that couplet around it. The Holy Spirit guarding him on both the front and the back ends of this speech. But I can't help but see this wonderful, amazing truth all throughout that speech, that discourse that we just read. See, as he bore witness to the magnificence of God, 
he saw in that moment a kind of heavenly regalia, a heavenly regalia of God before his own eyes, over and above an earthly regalia that the council, those of high esteem, seemed to have in front of him. He saw the glory of God over the glory of men. And friends, as we ourselves face persecution or trials of various kinds, we have that same comforting promise from Luke 12 as well, from Christ. The Spirit of Christ is with us, and he will hold us fast. I'm reminded of uh, the, the wonderful hymn by the humble uh, woman of God about a hundred some years ago now, who wrote that wonderful hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. She said this wonderful truth that when we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Such was the case for Stephen here in this moment. And quite literally speaking, as we're about to read here, there's just a few short moments as well. But the same goes for us. See, this morning, my hope for us as we turn our attention to this uh, picture before us is that we would see not only assurance, this assurance that God goes with us in all these things, but also that we would take solace and find rest when we face these things, because we will in various ways. And I want us to cling to this truth that is before us in our bulletins this morning, this big truth that we can take away this morning, that wherever opposition stands against the church, wherever opposition against the church is faced, in fact, God's covenantal promise still stands. And that is our hope that we can cling to. Such was also the undercurrent of Stephen's uh, message, if you will. And we saw that in the first 50 verses that we just read. Again, a long passage, admittedly so. But we saw this dual theme of opposition and yet God's covenant. Opposition and God's covenant. But now we're about to see this here as well in Stephen's own case. See, we see the opposition here in verses 51 through 54 and then followed up with God's covenantal promise fulfilled in verses 55 through 60. But here again, Stephen's words in verse 51. He says this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now immediately when you hear that, you might think, man, can Christians actually say that kind of thing? Can we get away with saying something like that? Oh, apparently so, according to this text, by example. Um, but when it's only, of course, appropriate. Um, that phrase might sound jarring to us for him to say, you uncircumcised people, you know. But really, he wasn't saying slander and things to cause deep offense at a human level. He was rather saying something that would provide passage for the Holy Spirit to provide conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. See, if we think back to Acts 6, again, we noted earlier that Stephen was full of what? Full of faith. And also what? Full of the Holy Spirit. And so even as he said these words, they were coming from the Lord himself directing him, directing him to even say and call out these wicked people as such. But it's important for us to understand this undercurrent of opposition and covenant, opposition and covenant that we see throughout the text of his speech. If we miss it, we will end up missing even the punchline of verse 51. That whole, you know, you are these people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. We'll end up botching up the entire picture if we don't see uh, his speech as kind of a game of connect the dots, if you will. If we don't connect each dot from one point to the next, which is also why I wanted to read the whole thing, if we don't connect each dot along the way, we'll end up with a botched up picture at the end. Uh, for those of you who are kids who might enjoy doing those puzzles like connect the dots, you might know from past experience that if you've ever have missed one of the dots or one of the numbers along the way when you were connecting the dots, you end up getting not the puppy you were hoping to see, but you get some kind of scribbled mess of a line all over the place, right? Well, in the same way, in Acts 7, if we miss the dots along the way and don't carefully connect all the dots together, we'll get a botched up picture and just be left with confusion. So what was Stephen's message actually about? That's the question for us. And why did he deliver it in such a somewhat confusing way, talking all about Old Testament history and whatnot? Well, I would argue and venture even to say that 
Stephen here, again, being filled with the Holy Spirit, was actually following Christ's example. If you think back to how Christ would teach and even how he would call out those who were uh, Pharisees and, and scribes and religious leaders who opposed him, he actually addressed them very much like Stephen here. He addressed them by speaking in parables and language that was, albeit a bit confusing, for the purpose of separating those who would actually hear from those who would not hear. And so those who were actually of Christ would hear his message and receive it, and those who were not of Christ would not receive it, and they would be dumbfounded by it. Again, all those scribbled lines in their minds as they didn't connect the real dots. And so it was with Stephen. See, Stephen here followed his Lord Jesus and his example that he set before him. Stephen here was, again, filled with the Spirit and instructed by the Spirit in this hour in how he ought to address and answer these accusers before him. And so he didn't just follow Christ in his suffering, but even his speaking, in his rhetoric. Well, Stephen went on in verse 52, and he says this, Which of the prophets did your father not persecute? Here Stephen alluded not just to the men of old like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the other prophets like Amos that he also quoted from, but he actually went all the way back to Moses, the prophetic archetype, if you will, you know, the, 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 prophet, uh, the prophet figure in the Old Testament who is larger than life, so it seems. See, up until this point, though, he did this for a reason. Up until this point, he had the attention of the whole council. He knew that each one of the members of the council came from various backgrounds, different uh, sects, if you will, within Judaism. Those who were Pharisees, those who were Sadducees, those who were scribes or rulers. The high priest as well, as we saw earlier in Acts, was also likely present right there, as we saw in the first verse of Acts 7. And so he knew that he was addressing all kinds of people from differing schools of thought. And so strategically so, Stephen intentionally, even in his sermon, went back to the beginning, to point number one. And he started speaking of Abraham, the one that they all could at least claim some kind of allegiance to. And so beginning with Abraham, he explained that there had always been opposition against the people of God. Not just even Abraham, but even prior, even going back to the Garden of Eden. For as Genesis 3.15 tells us, uh, between the serpent and Eve and that showdown there in the garden, God said, I will put enmity between you, meaning the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. There would always be this line, the line that was righteous and the line that was wicked, the line of God and the line that did not belong to him. Now, any good student of the law, such as those within the council, whether they were Sadducees or scribes or Pharisees alike, they would all know that opposition inevitably would lay in wait for God's people. For they knew also the promise within Genesis 3.15, this promise that he, meaning the offspring of the woman, would one day bruise your head, the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, the offspring of the serpent would always be biting at the people of God, but he would not win. God in his covenant of life would triumph over the enemy. And there would be one who would come in God's timing, who would hold fast to that covenantal promise of life, perfectly fulfilling the covenant of works and providing us with the covenant of grace and crush the head of that serpentine accuser of God's people and put it away once and for all. See, the council of all the Jews, again, whether Sadducees or Pharisees, they would have known this. And so Stephen tried to help them connect the dots. You know, hear what I'm saying, please, hear. And so he's going back and connecting all these dots for them. First, he says this, opposition stood against Abraham. But what happened? God proved himself faithful to his own people. Then he talks about uh, the patriarchs and how opposition stood against them. And yet God proved himself faithful to his covenant. And then he talked about Moses, as we, as we read earlier as well. And yet God remained true and faithful. And then finally, we get around to David and Solomon, who were building the temple. And we see that there was opposition against even them. And yet God prevailed. But then Stephen did something very curious here in this text. Who does he then quote from? He quotes from the prophet Isaiah at this point. Well, why was Isaiah so important? How do these dots connect, if you will? Well, he ends up quoting from the prophet Isaiah 
Because Isaiah was actually sent to be a messenger to a people also of blocked ears, if you will. See, if you're not yet familiar with Isaiah's ministry, if you read through the book, you'll, you'll see it in different ways, but he himself was perhaps the most noble of all of the prophets throughout that whole time. If you look at the major and minor prophets alike, he was probably the most noble of all of them. He was, in fact, the right-hand man, as it were, to King Uzziah. And so in the year that King Uzziah died, we know in Isaiah chapter 6 that he was enraptured with this wonderful, beatific vision of God and God's throne room. The train of his robe even just filling and flooding the entire temple and the seraphim worshiping and bowing down before him, covering their eyes before God on high. And yet as the Lord sanctioned him and cleansed him and purged him and his perverse lips that he was concerned about, you know, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm broken down. How can I proclaim your faithfulness? As God cleansed him and purged him and, and prepared him for that ministry, what kind of ministry did he call Isaiah to? Well, in Isaiah 6, we have the answer. The Lord God himself said to Isaiah, in response to his humble petition, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not hear. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. What a sobering message. And so from that point on, Isaiah's own ministry became one of proclamation without seeing much fruit. It became one of him proclaiming the glories of God and it falling upon deafened ears time and time again. And so as was the case with Isaiah, now it was the case with Stephen here. Opposition and adversity from those who were uncircumcised in their hearts, spiritually speaking, rose up against God's people all for the purpose that God's judgment against sin would be seen as just and fair. This is why I believe Stephen seems to so abruptly end his sermon right here in Acts 7. Because it's what he says here, as he's then quoting Isaiah, and then going right off the heels of that, that is so important. Up until this point, he's been connecting these dots all throughout Old Testament history, and at this point now, he's connecting the dot to even the present day and age with these people who are presently before him. See, the final dot in this long line of connected dots was none other than this, that these people in the mob and even the Jewish council before him stood opposed to Christ, the covenant maker and covenant keeper. They stood opposed to the righteous one, to God himself. They were not of their father Abraham as they once loved to claim, but they were of their father the devil. The same men who had opposed Abraham in the past and who had opposed the patriarchs and Moses and David and Amos and Isaiah, who was also quoted here, were their own fathers, spiritually speaking. Their fathers were the ones who persecuted the people like the prophets who announced in advance the coming of Christ. And so what about these own council mem members and the mob as well? Well, they were none other than those who were continuing this trend, following in the footsteps of their own spiritual, or rather unspiritual fathers. They were the ones who betrayed and murdered the Son of God. Well, upon hearing this sharp word, this verse 54 tells us the following. You know, how did they receive this message from Stephen? Not so hotly, right? <laughs> What they say is this, they were, it says that they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. I tried searching around for a way to even describe this kind of picture, you know, a kind of facial expression to describe this. And I couldn't even adequately describe just how vivid this is here in the text. Their faces just shriveled up and crinkled up, if you will, angry, biting, grinding their teeth at Stephen. Truly something that was otherworldly. See, in contrast to Stephen, who was full of wisdom and faith and power and the Holy Spirit, as we saw earlier, these men became overruled, especially in this moment, but overruled by their hardened hearts, by anger, malice, and as opposed to the Holy Spirit, 
a spirit of rage. Something truly demonic, if you will. While Stephen's face was composed and shining like that of an angel's, their faces were just clenched. But in the midst of opposition, God's covenant of life still proved true. How so? Well, verse 55 continues on and it says this, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. Again, his covenant keeper, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Friends, where his adversities had borne a kind of false witness against him, here, Stephen bore true witness to the gospel of grace. And while what we were about to read of here in these final few verses reads like nothing short of a tragic and bitter story, a bitter end to the precious life of one of God's saints, here we see also in the same way the beginning of all sorts of Christian witness and Christian missionary work yet even martyred him at the same time. For Stephen's being was hidden in Christ. And that by definition is the starting point of anybody who wants to bear witness for Christ or serve in the sense of a missionary on purpose, on mission for God. His being was hidden in Christ and Stephen in that moment forsook all, even his own life, for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, both in his life, but also here as we're about to read, in his death. See, like those martyred prophets before him of old, his impending death, now just seconds away, at the hand of a violent and godless mob, testified of nothing short of Christ's own death and resurrection. In other words, there is a picture of hope even here in the midst of opposition and adversity. How so then? Well, as we're about to read here in these final few verses, there is a brimming portrait of Christ here before us. See, in the most ironic of ways, the mob notably raised a loud voice and literally stopped their ears so that they couldn't hear what Stephen was saying. And then something else happened. They rushed at him. In the Greek language, this idea of them rushing together at him rushing together, has that notion that literally carries this idea of them being as if they are just one entity, a singular force going up against one of God's people. Where else do we read in Scripture moments like these? Uh, truly all over the place, again, like Stephen was just quoting from the Old Testament. But I think immediately back to the chapter uh, regarding the man of the Gerasenes, Mark 5 itself, where Christ cast out a legion of demons into a host of swine along the countryside, along the Sea of Galilee. And as he cast them out, they madly then rushed into the Sea of Galilee and drowned themselves. And a little bit of uh, trivia for you, I've actually uh, been to the Sea of Galilee when I was in Israel years ago, and um, some people actually say that they found some kind of carcass remains even to this day. Don't know how true that is, but regardless, it was a tragic and bitter irony there that whole legion of demons rushed into these swine and, and rushed down into the, into the sea. Well, in that same demonic way, these men began to rush as if one body, one legion, if you will, at Stephen. And what did they do to him? They didn't rush him off a cliff, but they, they cast him out of the city, something even more dishonoring. Like a legion of demons, they rushed at him for the purpose of murder, and nothing less. The purpose of destruction. As the scriptures say, their feet were swift to shed blood, like that of Cain before Abel. And yet in the midst of the chaotic and demonic and truly anti-Christ efforts of these people, something far greater was on display. It's not all doom and gloom here, even in the moment of dire persecution, one of the most vivid pictures of persecution we even have in the scripture here before us. There is yet a better picture in front of us. And that's the portrait of Christ. Where is Christ here in this passage? 
Well, honestly, when we realize that Stephen followed in Christ's footsteps and that he suffered along with Christ, sharing in his sufferings, we cannot help but see Christ. See, Stephen shared in the sufferings of Christ in such a way that even a certain man known as Saul of Tarsus couldn't help but ever erase the tragic events from his mind's eye ever again. Stephen, much like Jesus, was also led like a lamb to the slaughter. Verse 58 says this in Acts 7, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Stephen was essentially made to be almost like a scapegoat, if you will. Much like the Old Testament passages that talk about the scapegoat carrying the sins of the people and expiating them or removing them as far as the east is from the west, outside of the city gates, and then kicking out the goat until it died, so it was with Stephen. But even so, it was with our Lord. When they crucified our Lord, they also made him to be the scapegoat. Although, ironically and truly enough, he truly bore our sin and our shame. And they cast him out of the city of Jerusalem, our Lord himself, and crucified him. And so they did with Stephen as well, who followed Christ. But there's even greater uh, similitude between these things. Because Stephen, too, was made to suffer because of the sins of his people. Not for them, but because of them. Because of the murderous hearts of the people that were his own kinsmen. Similarly so, uh, just as Christ's garments were taken off and laid down at the feet of some of his accusers and mockers, you know, the, the guards around him, around the cross, garments, garments here in Acts 7 were also seen, and they were laid down, but not Stephen's garments. Rather, the murderers themselves, they laid their own garments down, and where did they put them? They put them at the feet of a young, up-and-coming Pharisee named Saul. Saul, again, who could never forget this scene the rest of his life. But take note of something even more grand than just these similarities. Just him being cast out of the city and him being around garments being thrown down. There's something far greater here that just paints this portrait of Christ before us. In verses 59 through 60, I invite you to, to look at these two verses with me. It says this, and in here, we, we read of a kind of dying grace that just pours forth from his lips in this moment. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. See, what is marvelous about this moment of sheer persecution is that the spirit tended to him all the way. All the way, his precious Lord and Savior led him. In his living, Stephen bore witness to his Redeemer. And in his dying, Stephen bore witness to his Redeemer. The same living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, held fast his own in the precious arms of Christ in that moment. He knew no other help in that moment. Stephen saw Jesus. Just as Christ upon the cross cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, so Stephen, in a Christ-like way, cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And similarly so, Stephen cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As Christ cried out upon the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you see the similarities there? In that moment, stone by stone, lithos by lithos, were hurled at him. These stones being hurled at him amidst his own cries of faith and even forgiveness of those who murdered him. Each concussive blow marring his image before this murderous, godless people until he finally breathed his last and fell asleep as the text puts it so well. In that day, the earthly city of Jerusalem 
was never the same. And truly, it will never be the same. Not at least until that heavenly city from on high, that celestial city, as Bunyan once called it, comes down that new Jerusalem from above and removes the old. See, due to the lack of civil authority, murderous persecution then began to break out amongst all of Jerusalem. All of the people here who were gathered, those thousands of believers who were gathered to hear the good news and live together in that communal way of life that we read about the last several chapters, were all scattered. All of them, according to Acts 8, aside from the apostles. Men, women, and children were forced to flee to the hills for refuge. They ran for their lives. And they found safe haven, thankfully, in places like Judea and Samaria. Ironically enough, in the next few chapters, we will see much more about this persecution of the church and how it just continued to only be exacerbated. But the irony is here in this moment that as these believers were forced to flee, they actually were fulfilling God's kind providence toward them and his promise that Christ made in Acts 1.8 that they would be his witnesses in not only Jerusalem, but also Judea and Samaria, and eventually the uttermost parts of the earth. And so in many ways, these believers were essentially forced in that moment to live and to become as missionaries in that time. But the church was still met with suffering and opposition for the cause of Christ. And the church itself would also then prove to never be the same as such, Not just Jerusalem, but the church. And I think it's important for us to take away these uh, moments, uh, the truth from these moments, rather, um, because they are important for our own day and age and how we look at protecting our own religious liberties. See, here in Acts 7, it alludes to this, that civil and religious liberties there were overlooked. The welfare of the Christians was overlooked at the hands of these murderous people. And it wasn't right. It was unjust punishment. Uh, The Pax Romana or the Roman law concerning peace, which actually protected Christians and their right to capital jurisdiction, were actually ignored in that moment. It wasn't right that they murdered Stephen. They actually were sinning against the law, the civil authorities, by doing so. But apparently so, and we don't know for sure from the text, but apparently the Roman civil authorities were either just absent from that day or for that time, Or they simply, at that moment, turned a blind eye to the persecution that continued onward. Christians from that point forward, though, were mocked and jeered at in the streets at best. And at the worst, they were forced into hiding or thrown into prison indeterminately or even killed for their faith. But all the several thousands of believers, aside from the apostles, as we again mentioned earlier, were then scattered forced to be missionaries. Unlawful mob rule became commonplace, and Pharisees such as Saul began to ravage the church. Now, admittedly so, this chapter leaves with much of a cliffhanger, if you will, kind of uh, an ending that you don't want to just stop, but that is where the chapter ends. But I do want to give us some hope uh, before we return to Acts 8 next Sunday. I do want to give us hope in the meantime, and we'll close out with this. That in spite of all of these things, something, or really someone, was promoted in the eyes of every believer from that point forward. It wasn't about the persecution in the end. It wasn't about even Stephen and him bearing witness. And what a great example that was. At the end of the day, the people, the believers, they saw Figuratively speaking, but just as Stephen had, really, the Son of Man. They saw the Son of Man, King Jesus in all of his glory, although indirectly at a distance. They saw, just as uh, the prophet Daniel had seen in his own day in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man radiating with perfect divinity, cosmic rule, and everlasting incorruptible dominion over all things. The church knew that Jesus Christ from this moment on 
was in fact the ancient of days himself. The one who had always been and the one who had always, who always would be with them and would continue to be with them and safeguard them. And so this was the hope that the believers clung to. And this is the hope that I pray we would also take away this morning. That as we ourselves face trials and tribulations of various kinds, that our eyes would be fixated upon King Jesus. And as that hymn writer Helen that we quoted earlier instructed us even, uh, these truths still ring true, that as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, as we look full in his wonderful face, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So friends, may that be true of us this morning and now and always. Now let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that this uh, time is uh, precious uh, to us. It is a time that you use to restore us and, and encourage us and refresh us for the week ahead. <clears throat> and so we ask God that you would be uh, the one who continues to prove yourself true um, as we face trials even this week, uh, various moments of suffering and feeling um, not as if we have it as bad as Stephen did, but certainly that we can identify with those moments from time to time, that we would be strengthened in the midst of those things. That in the midst of opposition, we would hold fast to your covenant and your covenantal promises. That we would hold fast to Christ and know the promise of life that is ours in him. Eternal life. Unfailing, unending life. Eternal gifted to us, wrapped up in the most glorious of all, life in Christ. And so, Father, we pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.